Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Labor, the podcast brought to you by the Caribbean. This installment took us to Word, a really great bookstore in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, where we met with Christopher Jansma, whose debut novel, The Unchangeable Spots of Leopards, was released this spring on Viking. I've read it, enjoyed it thoroughly. I know, I know Matt read it and, uh, and had the same reaction. And uh, we're far from alone there. The, uh, the critical reviews have been, uh, have been quite positive, which, uh, which is always nice. Not universally positive, I might add. We, uh, we discussed that in the course of our conversation. There, there have been dissenting voices, but that's, that's one of the uh, realities, the, uh, the pitfalls of, of, of putting a, a piece of work out there for, uh, for public and, and critical consumption. We uh, we discussed as uh, as always on labor the uh, the creative process, and in this case, some of the uh, similarities, uh, but also the disjunct between writing prose and writing music. In one particularly interesting part of the conversation, we discussed uh, in Christopher's case here the benefit of working with a large publishing house and. Uh, and the resources you have available when, when you get that opportunity, the editors and and the, and the copy editors and and the work they do to to improve your uh, your work and 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 bring it through to the uh, to the finished product. I I found that part fascinating. We were uh, we were pleased to have uh, Chris's wife Leah with us for this conversation and uh, and really welcomed all of her contributions and and insights to the uh, to the topics at hand as well so uh without further delay we'll uh we'll move on to uh to our conversation with uh with christopher jansma thanks uh for coming back to labor glad to see you as always and uh and see you again next time thanks just let it fly you know so go ahead uh well no, I, I we this comes up a lot of conversation of, of and because I write songs, it's something that I think about. Uh, what do you listen for? I listen actually for melody. I do. I don't. Lyrics come way later for me when I listen to stuff. I always said lyrics. I don't really feel this way anymore. For me, for a long time, I said lyrics are only important when they suck. When they <laughs> when they distract you from a good song. Um, and which will be demonstrated later tonight. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And this next time I distract you from a good song, yeah. it's about. But I do think, um, as I become better at writing lyrics, or at least more focused on it, it, I don't feel quite that way, but I think, I'm, and I don't know if that makes me more musician than a writer. I graduated from college, I was going to hang a shingle list of novelists on my door. <laughs> I wrote short stories, scores of them, and I always did the three or four week test, put it in a drawer and look at it later, and it just never, it, I went, oh, that's Raymond Carver, that's John Cheever, you know, whatever. I never found my own voice, you know, because I didn't feel that I did. And music instantly, even when I sucked, it was me. It sounded like me, it sounded like my own voice, it didn't sound like anybody else. So um, I was a writer, but I listened for music first. And so that whole idea of a musician never, I mean, never listening for lyrics is a little, that's a little extreme, but I can understand it, you know. So how does that, how does that, how do, and, and by the way, open floor, if you have anything to, Ask or contribute or say. I actually think that's kind of funny because, like, I always wonder why I love top 40 pop songs. <laughs> and I actually listen to like, melody first, and I'm like, oh, I like this beat, I like the melody, I like the music. And then you listen to the words, and they're really dumb. Yeah. But then, like, I'm stuck on the song because it's, I'm just kind of like. It's almost like the dumber it is, the better. The better the beat is. Yeah. Doesn't give it it's play. really strange. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's a, whole, there's a whole school of thought on that, and it doesn't really matter what the lyrics are saying, it's what they're saying. What they sound like phonetically and how they fit rhythm. That's how I write lyrics. Yeah, yeah. It's all phonetics. And makes sense of the Right, 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 right. And that's absolutely the case if you look under a microscope and any of those. It makes me think of the old. Who was it? Uh, which old comedian was this? We were talking about earlier today, in fact. We'll edit this part out. Uh, Russell's. The, uh, he used to do the analysis of pop songs, he would do it as poetry. He would take these banal, sort of ridiculous pop songs. And Steve would, Allen. Dude. Steve Allen, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, okay. This is anybody other than Steve Allen. Steve Allen. Get on my bed. Uh, <laughs> Simpsons. 
quotes will come up here and there. I need you to outline the board gag. I couldn't really say yeah. that, but... Oh, yeah. Is, is that when they go to Itchy and Scratchy Land? They're at Itchy Scratchy Land, and they say, uh, yeah, what is it, Link? He's looking for He's a looking for a Bart license plate, but the right. closest he gets is Bort. And I so don't it, remember well, that. They say, you know, Bort, you know, you know who names their kid Bort? Right. Yeah, yeah, and then a little bit later on in the episode, you hear over the amusement park PA, you know, would Bort, you know, please report <laughs> no, what it is. We're out of Bort license plates, is what they said. We're out of Bort license plates. From that same episode, my college roommate will, every time we get out of the car in the parking lot, every time he will turn to me and say, remember, we parked in the itchy lot. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like that, there's one gag in the beginning where they park, and it's like they're in the itchy lot, and it's like yeah. huge, yeah. itchy, and then like another huge, scratchy lot. And that's, yeah. We have so many lines like that that are shorthand for these big ideas that literally, I mean, I, I don't know where we'd be with that. We should have written where we were down. I was, I was Scaring around. I was telling you earlier, but uh, when I first got to college, I, I'd never really seen The Simpsons before. I wasn't allowed to watch all the TV growing up, and, uh, and I quickly found that I could not communicate with my roommate, same guy, uh, because all he did was re reference The Simpsons and some, some family guy at that point. And uh, so we spent pretty much the entire year in our dorm room just watching every episode of The Simpsons that had been aired until that point. And, uh, and it was like a crash course in, like, you know, in modern culture. Yeah. I, all the stuff that I totally missed growing up. And it's funny you say that about modern culture because there are things that I know, like academic scholarly things that I yeah. know through that prism, but not through the original source. Yeah. It would be awesome if I could think of an example, but it even came up the other day. I was watching Jeopardy. I was at my parents. They watch every night. And I knew the answer to something, and not because I had studied that, <laughs> right. you know, 16th, 15th century painter, but because I'd seen a reference to him. Yeah, yeah. It well, is a window. One thing that has come up recently is, um, yeah, as, as Chris's friends are reading the book, yeah. People keep coming up to him and saying, you know, oh, I totally get that joke. I know who you named that character after. Or I recognize that phrase. Isn't that something I said to you at a party? And, you know, I wonder how much of that is deliberate on your part. You know, are you yeah. are you putting in those little gems for mm -hmm. people who know you? Or is it just so much part of your own language that, you know, that you don't even realize you're doing it? Yeah, I mean, I always, I, I, I think partly because of probably that whole process, like I, I think it references a lot of the times. And, you know, I think, and I think that's, it's one of the things that's really difficult about um, about writing like modern characters is you know it doesn't feel very literary but like if one you know if I if I want to capture the way that two people you know in their twenties or thirties you know communicate with one another two college age guys let's say you know they're gonna drop a Simpson reference you know or something like that and then you know does the audience necessarily get it you know um, if they haven't seen that episode or you know is it too obscure um, but yeah no I, I think that, I, I think about that a lot I think I have had a lot of friends come up to me and say like oh I remember that little bit that you you know, you put in there, and that was some joke that someone said made at such and such party or something. Are they always right, or have people said that to you, and you're actually no, actually, yeah, I didn't get that from you. I, I <laughs> sometimes I forget that I did get it from them. Like sometimes uh -huh. it's just been kind of turning around in my head a lot. It's a lawsuit or two for Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the other day was, uh, I was chatting with a, a high school friend, and he pointed out a line to me um, from the first chapter. There's a a, a character named Rodrigo. Who's a, a, guy who works in the kitchen with, uh, with the narrator, and he makes a joke about wanting to have a half Puerto Rican, half Southern male baby with this uh, with the woman that, that the narrator is in love with, and, uh, and I totally forgot that I stole that from his cousin, um, who at one point told me that he his life's goal was to travel around the world, and he wanted to father an illegitimate child with some woman in every one of the 50 states. Uh, that was like all he wanted to do with his life. That's where uh, that's where Sufjan got it from. Is that the uh, oh the I was going to make the same uh, reference. Making a record back. Yeah, how far did you get on that? Two, two, two. Michigan and Illinois. That's the Well, yeah. It's good to bring up another topic. What's that? It's good to have goals. It's good to have goals. Well, it's funny how seriously that was taken. He said, you know, after the fact, like I never ever intended to do that. That was like a PR gimmick, you know. So we can now talk about PR gimmicks. Well, it is interesting, like, but yeah. we're actually getting deeper into this with a friend of ours who's a producer, and, you know, at times we, we talk about these things with the idea of persona, of course, versus um, what you're really like. And that's something that doesn't, like, the persona, like, developing one does not come naturally to us at all. Um, 
I know it may be hard to believe sitting here with this, but um, no, we're, we're just, uh, I don't know, probably direct and honest to a fault. Well, we are really good about <laughs> putting up this. You guys don't have a rock star persona. Uh, not that you've seen me yet. We, just, we actually we actually like people and enjoy talking to them. And when we do an interview, we're not standoff. We look at it as an opportunity to have a conversation. Yeah. And hopefully with somebody intelligent. And if it's with somebody who's not or somebody who doesn't get it, it's a short conversation. Yeah. But nobody's gonna nobody's gonna pull rank, yeah. you know, and, and, and say you know, you're not you're not worthy to to, to interview. And I, it, it's the old it's the old. Um, Betty Davis line, you know, you're nobody if you're not difficult. And I understand that, you know, and actually I know that reference, not from Betty Davis saying it, from Richie Blackmore quoting Betty Davis saying it. <laughs> nice. Which is a really bizarre reference, but, and you do maybe score some PR points being difficult because people think, well, he's difficult, he must be good. I, that's not, you know, I think that, you know, we, we the last record I think we took the opportunity to be actually more open about other stuff, knowing that they had some PR value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was truth, but I mean, we, we ran with it. You know? Yeah. We're going to do that in this number. So. Yeah, it was just, it just was, the timing was right. Um, I don't, you know, I don't, I have nothing to hide, so it's like, fine, you know, and, and I got deep trouble with work, but you know, the point is, I uh, was just honest about my life and certain things, and I knew that it had some, I mean, so I knew that it had some PR play, you know. So that maybe maybe encouraged me to be even more open than honest. But you, know. but you can't ignore it. That's kind of what we've learned. Because I mean, for years and years, you were just like, well, the cool thing to do is just be yourself, right? And then like this sort of uh, level of interest because you're you, you know, and you're just honest about and the things out there. Themselves. But people need, but you know, it's marketing is a different thing entirely. Yeah. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Just people need sound bites. They went, yeah. well, like, oh, Christopher Jansen, he's the author of blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He locked himself in a closet for 17 months straight. <laughs> I mean, people need little. It's true. I mean, this is not news to a great portion of humanity, but it was, you know, it's yeah. just, I know this in principle, but in yeah. practice, it's a very different thing. I think yeah. we're all very, if not, don't have exactly Midwestern roots, but I mean, kind of like middle class, like, mm-hmm. roots where, Nobody respects you putting on airs yeah. at all. Right. Like, you're just going to be cut down to size instantly. So it doesn't come naturally. You probably want to say, I don't want to talk about mail. I don't want to work. Yeah. We're here because of my novel. We're here because of our record, and that's the whole. Yeah. And you know, you have to, but you have to be sensitive to the fact that what you bring as the face of that project can help get more people to pay yeah. attention to your work. So you have to, you know, it's not selling out, but it's hard. Yeah, I, for, for me as a fiction writer, it's, I mean, part of the reason I got into fiction in particular, you know, when I started writing is I had a really hard time writing uh, honestly, you know, honestly about my life, mostly because I thought my life wasn't that interesting. And, I, and this partly came from going to a college writing program, but, you know, there are kids in my class who, uh, you know, one girl, you know, writing stories from her own, you know, firsthand knowledge of, you know, watching her village in Africa be, you know, torn apart by, you know, people from the neighboring tribe. And, I was like, I can't top that, you know, I've got a story about, you know, a girl that didn't kiss me after her bar mitzvah or whatever, and, you know, that's just not going to get me very far. Um, so I started kind of going more towards, uh, you know, instead of writing, you know, straight from my life, you know, trying to take, uh, for a while what I did was I would try to write stories about the kind of ridiculous people that I knew in my life um, and try to write stories about them. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you get a royalty? <laughs> we walk around now and we say trademarks, like whatever we think we say. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, it, but yeah, but, uh, you know, so for me, part of the appeal of writing fiction was that you can open the doors to different, you know, different types of personalities um, for the, your narrators. They don't have to just be, you know, exactly like yourself. Uh, you can write about places you've never been to. Um, you know, uh, and and, it, and the challenge is then to try to make it actually feel real when you're you know when you're writing about it, make, make, convince people on the other end that you actually did go to these places that you're writing about. Um, so there's, but one, it, there's one from your book I I yeah. remember uh, uh, Luxembourg. Yeah, uh, I was reading about the scenes set in Luxembourg. Yeah, or, or reading the scenes set in Luxembourg. Uh, I've never been, uh-huh. but it all it felt very well drawn to me. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so have you been? Um, I have, but so what happened was actually um, 
that was the, what's one of the later chapters in the book, and I actually hadn't written it yet when we sold the novel and stole kind of book, trying to figure out the ending. And uh, so I wrote that chapter um, in Luxembourg, and it all based on oh. research and, uh, that I did online. And then uh, only after I finished it did my wife and I actually manage to uh, to go. We were, we were going to Paris, and so we just were like, well, we're kind of close, so we'll jet over there on the train and spend the day. Uh, and, I, and it turned out to be exactly like what I described in the story, which was, you know, which was perfect. I mean, in the one of the first things he says about Luxembourg is, you know, he just doesn't really understand why it's here. Like, it doesn't mm -hmm. really seem to, there's nothing to say about it. And, uh, and that was exactly, we kind of got there and we were like, we walked around for two and a half hours, and we we're like, "Okay, this is all right. This is nice." And here it is. Here it is. And now, I, and like, we were really we were thinking about staying overnight. Or, you know, after three hours, we were done looking at the group. Where'd you do your online research? I mean, my guess would have been <laughs> yeah. you would go to the library and get some books. Yeah. You know, where, where do you go online for that kind of detailed yeah. information you want to to inform a novel? I mean, to for starters, uh, I, I have to be careful here because I. I have taught academic writing classes before. The first thing I always tell my students is don't use, you know, Wikipedia and don't trust Google hits. But, um, but actually, <laughs> but what I, what I actually find is that uh, a lot of, and what I do tell my students too, is that, um, you know, going on Google or using Wikipedia is often a great place to start. And then that, that sometimes can then lead you to other sources. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a reference librarian. So yeah. I do research for a living. Okay. Wikipedia is great. I use yeah. it all the time. Yeah. You just have to take the extra step of, uh, yeah. of verifying. Because of the end the inquiry. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I actually, that, a lot of the research I did was on Wikipedia using, you know, and then using Google, like, I mean, it's amazing, you, you know, Google Maps, you just drop a little guy down on the street in Luxembourg City, and then you're looking around to, you yeah. know, exactly what you, you know, would have to pay thousands of dollars in airfare to go see. Um, so that's how it got started, but I was really lucky in that, um, Vikings um, copy editing department are amazing, and uh, so they sent me. They, they fact checked everything, and they went through mm -hmm. and they sort of flagged anything that looked, you know, potentially ah. suspicious. And so then, what I ended up doing was going to a real library. I went to the Columbia University Library um, for I think almost like two and a half, three straight weeks um, every day, just going through a couple of pages at a time, trying to kind of get you know to check things and check right. everything for all the locales. You're, for, you're for all the locales. Yeah. Right. I mean, it takes place in like seven or eight different countries, I think, and um, and then. Um, and there are things that are real and things that are made up too. So it's uh, you know they're like names of companies that are in the book that are you know totally fictional and then right next to ones that are not. So um, so that was a, it was that was a really interesting process to go through. It's almost like a glossary of everything that I said in the story and verified which is true and which is made up. Um, so uh, yeah. Well, that, that's a compliment I wanted to pay you in that I I have a hard time with a lot of fiction. Uh, my bullshitometer goes off very easily and I don't know exactly why that is yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reader I'm not always a, I'm not quite the voracious reader I once was but it's very hard for me to uh, suspend disbelief yeah. and um, you absolutely did it I mean I, I usually I, I can't even you know get into like a couple chapters I'm like I just don't I just don't see it you know yeah. this doesn't seem plausible to me especially with dialogue and um, so I, you know you really absolutely novel, which is especially, you know, commendable considering it's, you know, it's an early one, on, or, or it's early in your career, you know, um, yeah. to have achieved that, which it touches on something else. I actually made a couple of notes here, um, which is basically you talk about, you talked about an interview I saw that was with actually Rich Folly about you're, you're really glad you didn't rush to put something out and to self-publish, yeah. um, which I think is interesting because most people do. Um, yeah. And in our area, you know, in music, it's, you know, it's absolutely something you do. I mean, sometimes sure. people put things out, especially the garage band and YouTube yeah. is all, oh, and all you really need in a to day. put out a record. Yeah. And a glut. Yeah. And it's a glut. It's a glut. And most was, things was don't that, really deserve to, to be out there. I mean, yeah. if, was it as easy as that when you guys first started kind of making music together? Or? It took a lot more work. Uh, I mean, when Matt and I did. When we started out, yeah. you know, our first record out in 93, I guess. In a previous band, but um, I mean, it, it wasn't impossible, but it's way the more. Yeah, it's you can do everything here, right? Like, yeah. Literally, by yeah. you know, right. in two hours, we can have something. Yeah. But um, yeah, so 
pressing. And I'm glad we did it because it started something. And you can wait. There's people who also wait too long, probably. Mm -hmm. It can be an excuse for not taking initiative and getting something done. Yeah. Um, but it, it was kind of counterintuitive to me what you said. But it absolutely was true, and it worked in your case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, there's always, I mean, I, I think self-publishing or, uh, like, uh, what do they call it, like, vanity presses and things right. like that. Um, that's always, that's been around for a long time. There's always been that, that outlet, um, you know, available. Um, but yeah, I, I, but only recently, I think, with uh, with really with Amazon, and I guess there were other websites doing it before Amazon did. But uh, Amazon, in particular, really sort of has made it as easy as you know, take your word document, hit upload, and it's for sale on their marketplace. Um, and it worried me. Um, you know, I, I knew pretty quickly it wasn't something I would want to do. Um, although there were moments when I was tempted, I, I had written, you know, these other books. I was, I thought they were really good. Um, I would, you know, even had, you know, had an agent. The agents were getting editors interested. At some points, I would even have editors say, like, oh, this is really good, but we just don't know how to um, market it or something like that. Some, some weird technicality would come up, and they would say, you know, we just can't, you know, figure out who we would sell this to or something. Um, and so the temptation to just hit the button and, and see if I could do it on my own was really big um, but I'm glad that in the long run as I told, told Rick that uh, you know I'm glad that I waited because uh, first of all um, to see what Viking was able to bring to the table as a, you know a, a publisher who's been around forever I mean they published Jack Kerouac they I mean they, they really know what they're doing and they you know so the copy editing is just one example that I was just talking about um, you know that's the kind of thing that I can spend years on my own just trying to go through all that and and this, you know, they know what they're doing. They were able to go through it in a couple of weeks and you know, weed out all the things that were red flags to, you know, mm -hmm. to set off your bullshit meter. And that's mm -hmm. the real thing. So then it doesn't embarrass me because there are all these mistakes in it. Um, and it also makes it more enjoyable for you as a reader. You can actually get into the book because somebody took the time to check it all, you know, make sure that it's realistic. You know. I'd love to ask a question, um, yeah. because I think one of the things that's really different about the book writing process versus the music writing process is that as a book writer, you're really doing it alone. You know, you don't have the checks and balances of the other artists that you're going to be performing with. So I'd love, I was wondering if you guys could both speak a little bit about what your what your process is. You know, how do, how do you know when something is good, when something is done, and how do you guys know, or, or do you ever know? Yeah, well, you guys... I mean, you guys kind of collaborate together when you put songs. You talk about this. It's it's a, you know I mean I I write the songs that make the whole world sing, um, and <laughs> and I bring a song in, and it could be you know you know pre-polished form. It could be very raw. Depends really on just timing, you know. And I play it for these guys, and I have a long history with with Matt musically. We've been we play together for a long time. And really the reason that I started taking songwriting seriously is because he basically made me. He said, you know, because we both wrote songs, and he's like, you know what, I really, the other things that I love to do, writing songs isn't really one of them, and you're getting to be pretty good at it, so just do it, and I'll, I'll, I'll help arrange stuff. What that did for me is it, it, it gave me an audience, and, and this is true to this day. He knows, as I told him, when I write a song, Primarily, I, you know, I, my audience is Matt. Right. That's just he's been he's he's like my editor, you know, and and now more recently Dave's gotten involved in that. So now I think about how Dave listens to things, you know. But I go back far enough with Matt when I wasn't as consistent a writer, when I would write something that I really loved, mm -hmm. and he'd be going, ah, you know, you know, uh, well he would he would say, sorry, dude, this is not moving me, yeah. not doing it for me. Set off his bullshit. I don't know if that's and that's honestly like where that came from. I think. I mean, it's funny how it transfers from different art forms because I do sure. think that's part of it. Like, just spending so much time talking about what was good and what wasn't, right. not just about our stuff, but any yeah. music. You so, know, focus. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Here's why. This is bullshit. I agree. Here's what I mean, we talk yeah. about that stuff. Or he might say, "I like it, but it just doesn't." There's, it's, it's, you know, there needs to be a more compelling reason for us to work on this more. There needs to be something. I mean, it's going to sound kind of. There's something revolutionary about this. There's going to be something. This is what does this do that no other song does? That's what that's our criteria. That's that makes things hard, but it's that's how, that's that's yeah. the standard that you set. I've gotten much better, just because I know Matt better, and I'm beginning to understand what Dave listens for too. 
that I generally speaking yeah. know. Yeah. If I play something, uh, if a couple of new songs are playing tonight, and, and I remember playing them for them, kind of knowing that they were going to dig it. And a couple of songs, particularly the noise, he was going to be like, "Yes, you know, I knew, I just knew that." Uh, so that's when I when I feel that way, I know I have plenty of songs that I that I work on for a while that, that I never play for these guys because I just don't I don't it just doesn't get through. So it's a solitary thing for me for a while, but if it's it, it's written and this is what it's, it's written to share at a certain point and become a collaborative process and, and, and that's that's the difference. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean I I for me I, I think it's always been, you know, a very solitary process. I mean uh, I can work on something for I don't know how long it would you would work on a song before you bring it out and share it with these it guys. Really you know? yeah. um, but you know, often I would work on things, you know, completely solitarily for you know for years and never you know really show anybody and maybe you'd show my wife or uh, you know, I didn't have an editor or an agent or anything. Um, part of how I came to write Leopards actually um, it came out of this process of sort of opening up. Um, a lot of people had told me, uh, you know, recommended, you know, why don't you just you know, take your stuff you're writing and put it out on the internet, you know, and see if people respond to it. Um, and I was nervous about that, again, because it felt like self-publishing. Um, so what I decided to do one year was basically take, uh, try to write a story every week and just put it up online. And, and I figured that way, you know, people would know I had to spend a ton of time on it. If, if it wasn't great, then it was, you know, just the seed of something. Um, and, uh, and so I started doing that every week and put it up on a blog and then my friends and family and people would check it out and you know, most of the time I didn't get real feedback but it was really important for me because I think it unlocked something where I realized that you know, I was writing for these people you know, I had people who were going to be disappointed if I didn't finish um, I had people that I was trying to amuse if you know, I knew they would check it and, uh, you know, at the end of that week um, and as it turned out about eight of the chapters in this book got written over the course of that year, um, just sort of the first drafts at least kind of came out in that, in that process. Um, so uh, yeah, that really changed, I think, a lot of, uh, changed the way I wrote, um, because suddenly I uh, was thinking more about who would read it and why they would actually like it. Art is a public thing. It, it, it ultimately is. I mean, for me, art is a, is a way that we communicate with, meet people that we may never meet. Yeah. But you have a bond with people um, over some shared Thing that may be embodied in a novel or a story or a poem or a song, and and that's and it, and it is a big step. I think it's harder for writers because I think that you, you people who do write fiction or books generally, yeah, it is a solitary thing. It doesn't matter how many friends you've got. That's stuff that you do on your own, and it's a really important step to sort of to, to, to share it and say, yeah, this is actually the whole process. Mm -hmm. I can write something really good, but. Um, until I open up and 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 really expose myself to negative things too. Yeah. Until I put it in the marketplace of ideas, as I say in law school, um, I it's not finished. It's, I'm not finished. I'm not. I'm not a full artist until I'm able to do that. I think that's probably fairly well. And sometimes for us, because we have to play the people. We're the right? worst judge. I mean, not we, but anybody can be the worst judge of their own work. I mean. Sure. You have to put that out there. I'm sure you had moments where you're like, "People are gonna love this." This is just cricket noise, or the or the opposite. Yeah. Have you gotten scorched yet in a review where that this is this book yeah. sucks? I uh, almost all the reviews have been have been really good, and I'm really really happy about that. And I'm trying, you know, with all my might to kind of focus on that part of it. But yeah, I mean, I've gotten a couple of reviews that are just. I mean, they just totally missed. The point of the book, I think, in a weird way, the book is a is a great witness test of of a reader's um, you know sort of personality and what they bring to it. People, I think, people who have it's a very earnest book and it's a very sort of um, you know I don't want to say uh, we we're talking about this the other the other day with uh, another writer who had just wrote this great essay on uh, how uh, a lot of literature gets attacked for being sentimental, um, if if any, especially if, uh, when when uh, men are writing about anything that happened to that it gets kind of tagged and sort of sentimental. Uh, essay, the essay is by uh, Andrew Sean Greer. Uh, it was on the Daily Beast's website a few days ago. Um, anyway, but uh, so, you know, I had one, you know, just as one example, a, a, a review where the, the, <laughs> the poor reviewer uh, was so confused 
why I had written the book the way I had written it. She, she was so convinced that the writing was bad, like really, really bad, that she thought I must be intentionally writing a bad book and satirizing myself or something like that. And to see the verbal like loop she had to go through in order to sort of explain what I was doing from her perspective when the obvious answer was just, it's not bad, you just have a very different definition of what good is. You got the wrong thing. Yeah, and so, I mean, it was pa I mean, pages and pages long. I mean, it was, it was, it was yeah, surreal. Anyway. Well, not to call out the writer and yeah. we can get rid of this. Uh, oh, that's like, this is a published review or just yeah, something was, somebody uh, put up online that you came across? Uh, Salon.com. Oh, okay. was, uh, you know, a fairly well-known reviewer who, uh -huh. uh, you know, I've get other reviews of hers <laughs> and they're all, you know, very insightful and, uh, and, uh -huh. and uh, you know, not at all unhinged, but this one was... Well, what I thought was clear in reading that review, because I read it a couple of times, <laughs> was that she, she articulated throughout the review what kind of writing she loved and what yeah. kind of writing she was looking for. And what was so interesting about it was she was she was offended yeah. by the suggestion that there might be other kinds of good writing that didn't fall under the purview of good writing that she loved. Mm -hmm. And you know Which is kind of what a critic's job is, I suppose. But I, I, I would think a critic's job should be a Look at something and figure out, you know, what is what is the value here? Where does it fit? What, yeah, who would like this? You know, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I actually do creative work for bands, more music reviews, and I mean, I do have a set criteria of what I think is uh, good. And I mean, it's really drawn out. It's not bullshit. But I mean, <laughs> there are times like I went to see us Green Breakers, and I love Hornby, yeah, I love yeah. Hornby Green, but watching it, I really had to like reevaluate everything I do. <laughs> Because I was like, this is really bad, but then I was like, I see it's it's all just a vehicle for this this higher content, so uh, I really got to like watch it again and just kind of work with it. So I know I find yeah. which I love your book that way. Oh thank you. Admittedly I didn't get to finish it, but I really like it. Well, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I haven't seen that movie yet, but I've actually was listening to a few people talk the other day about how much they hated it. Um, yeah. You know where a person's from? Like I, yeah. I just moved here from Alabama and uh -huh. like I always tell people if you're from the South or if you have any strong feelings for like Disney or like MTV, you will never get the movie. That's all it's like a back. Okay. <laughs> and I think it's a similar thing with your book, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, she sort of, the reviewer maybe fell into a sort of a vacuum of what you were uh, getting at, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I find. I mean, there's so many different things to enjoy about a book. I mean, you could. You could I, and what I wanted to do actually. In the beginning was to set up. I, I really, I liked reading these books. Uh, often, you know, kind of literary fiction that was really, you know, really meta. Really, you know, got into like the process of how a book is written and that kind of thing. I liked Italian Calvino and uh, Nabokov and, and all these writers. But I, you know, was very well aware that a lot of other people just find that not very interesting. And uh, so, what I wanted to do was write a book that would sort of, you know, take some of those ideas and 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 make them interesting, like, you know, write a, write a book where um, where people who weren't writers themselves would find that stuff really interesting. Um, and I wanted to do that with this book through the idea that, you know, you don't have to be a writer in order to understand the passion that they feel towards what they're doing or the, the you know, the, um, the way that they're dedicating their life to this thing. And the, the bigger questions that are raised about, um, you know, What's the difference between you know the truths and the, a lie that you tell yourself enough that it becomes a truth and uh, and all those kind of things? I think those uh, you know those go much further beyond just uh, you know sort of being about writing or about fiction. Um, so, uh, but it's been interesting because I've seen a lot of people respond to it that have really enjoyed it. You know, almost like you know for pure entertainment value. You know, it's like love story and there's you know jealous rivalry and traveling around the world and. Uh, and and then other people who are really interested in the intellectual aspects of it, and uh, so I'm, I'm excited that it seems to appeal to people on both you know, sides of that divide. Um, it brings up a you know touch you touched on something there, which is sort of the notion of being, you know, do you want to be I guess a writer's writer, or yeah. do you want to be somebody who's a storyteller and people can relate to? And I I, I would I don't know what your answer is, but I think yeah. for most artists it's probably both or somewhere in the middle. Yeah, and I mean we've always been. I think the template for us unconsciously was always kind of like 
critical favorites, right? I know Crit it was for critics me. and sound men's darlings. Yes, yes. exactly. Sound men are sound like, like there's so much space. I yeah. love it. Really you know? hear everything. Um, like, like, we 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 we're, we're both see. Yeah, this room will be a challenge, I think, but it'll it be will. interesting. You know, dynamics are important, but it's it's. Yeah, we don't aim for that. But we, I do think that it's hard to believe the beginning, though. And again, I know growing up reading, you know, like Rolling Stone in the '80s as a teenager, you know, reading, getting sort of schooled in how these things work critically um, by Rolling Stone, which was prominent at the time, and uh, for, for good reason, for a good reason, spin um, and other things. Uh, that was definitely something I embraced. It's like I want to be this band that like gets the four and a half five star review, and <laughs> you know, maybe people. Not everybody loves it, but it's like and most of the bands. But it's unimpeachably great. You know, it has integrity and we, it's something yeah. that, that smart people did. Yeah. I understand that. Right, and it would be nice to have the other side, but I kind of realized <laughs> that that's you know that's not always going to come to you necessarily. Easily. Yeah. Well, what I always think it's really interesting is you know I look I look at books that are you know classics now that you know everybody reads. You know, I mean books that are literary, but that you know that are um, that are pretty commonly read. And uh, and so many of them were kind of those kind of smart books at the time, you know. Right. They, they were right, uh, you know, they were literary in it, kind of appreciated by a small set at first, mm -hmm. and then realized sort of as time went on, people were able to appreciate them outside of that. You know, um, I don't know. I, I was just thinking about The Great Gatsby because we had seen that movie more recently, and you know, I didn't love the movie, but I you know, I appreciated that you know they're basically taking this literary book and um, you know which I appreciate on on on. A level higher, I think, probably than a lot of non-writers would appreciate it, because uh, I'm sitting there reading it and thinking about Fitzgerald and the way he puts a sentence together and how he's no. not afraid of an adjective and all these other things that you yeah. know most people are more like you know oh what's Daisy going to do next you know, and so there's different you know different ways of appreciating I think a really good piece of art uh, you know a book or a song or whatever is something that can kind of hit different people at different levels depending on. No question. Absolutely. Well, The Simpsons could even be an example yeah. of that. It is an example. Embedded <laughs> jokes that they're at a very, very high level, you know, um, yeah. as you'd say in the teaching trade, you know, uh, higher order thinking is engaged, but also, you know, more, much more base impulses. You watch it with a little kid, and Maggie falls down, and they're <laughs> right. like, ah. And I watch it with middle school kids, and I mean, because I show it sometimes as examples of just like story arcs and conflict and those sorts of things, right. or just for fun. And, uh, yeah, they don't. It's interesting what they laugh at and how it's changed over. I've been at the same school now for ten years. How it's changed over time. Um, I think they used to have a much more sophisticated sense of things, and now it's less so. The students did. Yeah. Right. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Different. A different uh, topic. Well, I, I, found, I I have to admit, I kind of stopped watching The Simpsons back in like the early two thousands, and I, what actually did it for me was that the I, I started to feel like every time I watched it, the the story arcs would were totally. At some point, they just decided. We're not going to make the three acts between the commercial breaks tie together in any way whatsoever. We're just going to have, you know, something ridiculous happens for five minutes, and then, then like, the rest is a totally different episode almost. You know, it, it, it's funny you say that, because I lost it in the, I think we did in the late 90s. I mean, I used to, you know, the days of VCRs, we would tape them, you know, yeah. roommates and look in D.C., and, and uh, getting back to the bullshitometer, I mean, it started to, I'm like, no, Homer doesn't do that. He yeah, wouldn't exactly. say that. Right. Uh, he wouldn't they, they go and do that. They blew their own characters. They did. They blew their right. own characters. And it's ha yeah, very common in the old jumping the shark yeah. uh, trope. But the idea that they, but they, you know, they don't know them, their own characters. You know, these guys they had writing for. I used to complain about that all the time with uh, Friends with another show that, you know, I think, like, for a while was, I, I loved it when I was, I don't know, I was in high school mostly watching it. But um, they had a point where suddenly there was like, these people know each other so well. There's nothing that they all don't know each other about each other, and in every episode they would need something new to kind of get going on, and so the episode would, would begin with like, you know, Chandler brings home like a fuzzy doll from the store, and then Phoebe freaks out and she's like, "Didn't you know that I've always had this horrifying fear of right, fuzzy right, dolls right. or whatever?" And then and which has never been part of the character right. up until that point, and uh, and suddenly that would be like every single episode because it just run run out. Of they have no and it's a plausibility. Even with Simpsons, it's a cartoon. Yeah. It is ridiculous. It's been, always been ridiculous. Yeah. Even there, there is a plausibility standard that you have to meet. There is. Or it's there not as rules. funny. And, 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 you know, there's, you can't just be silly or funny. I love silly. Yeah. I mean, I saw three suits this morning, and I was giggling. You know, he laughed. Was shouting, Somebody called the roof. It was curly, and I was laughing. <laughs> but there has to be, you have to earn it. 
And they earned it for so many years, and in doing so, built characters that had parameters and had reasons for doing things. And then you have a, a, an episode, and it started out just a couple episodes, and it just became kind of regular, where just crazy shit just happens. Yeah. And and, and yes, against type, against logic, and uh, I mean the great episodes got really weird, but they all brought it back to something. They all tied it together, and it made it in that universe plausible. Yeah. And when you blow that up, you kind of lose credibility. You know? Well, it seems to be something that's really happening all over television. You know, and you know, you're not just looking at you know the reality TV lineup, which just gets more and more absurd every season. But how do you create authentic art in the world of Sharknado? I mean, what <laughs> if if you if Sharknado can exist, how can you create art? logical art at a high level anymore, or is it just over? I, I should disclose <laughs> that I enjoyed watching Sharknado and tweeting about it as much as anything I've ever enjoyed. Well, I'm, I'm waiting for Sharknado 2, personally. Well, and Sharknado 2 itself was green-lighted recently, yes. too. I saw yeah. putting that out. There's some great articles about that production company. Have you read that about Asylum? Yeah, I think we were just talking about this. Yeah, that was yes. good. Anyway, I'm sorry. Now back to the question. <laughs> I, I don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, sh shall we, uh, Chris, did you bring a reading you, you would like yeah. to, to do? Sure. Um, and it has to be perfectly tied into everything we've talked about. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that. Sharknado included. Yeah. <laughs> if you have Terraconda in there, I'd be interested. I don't have any weird double <laughs> animals in the book. Um, let's see. Uh, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter two in the book, which is called Pinkerton and McGann. Um, and uh, just because this kind of ties back a little, little bit to what we were talking about before, um, we were talking about sort of, uh, well actually I don't know if we've been talking about it on the podcast as much, but maybe we can afterwards, about um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, the influence of, you know, the classroom, I guess, on, on art uh, and, uh, and sort of learning to, um, learning to uh, get away from what other people are sort of pressing on you that, you know, all, all all writing has to do this, or all music has to do that. Um, so I'll just read a little bit of this chapter. Julian McGann was the only other boy in my freshman fiction and poetry class, which met at 8.30 in the morning in a forgotten sub-basement of Abernathy Hall. While the balding Professor Morrissey squawked about Hawthorne and Longfellow over the clanking of Berkshire College's infamous steam radiators, Julian sat at the far end of the conference table, and twice a week passed the ungodly early hour watching the leaves pile up against the raised windows. The girls spent the class mostly staring at the brown freckles that bridged Julian's nose. He always sat up perfectly straight. His reddish hair was a perfectly kept mess. I assumed Julian was a slacker since he rarely spoke or wrote anything down, and I was certain that he would never be a real writer like me. The first story of Julian's that I ever read was in this class. His slim piece, The 33rd Winter, had fluttered weightlessly when he had passed along our, across our long table. Unlike my story, The Gravity in Durham, which had thudded meaningfully in front of each student, clocking in at a far more impressive 20 pages. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, Professor Morrissey proclaimed, as I returned my attention to the Emily Dickinson poem we were meant to be scanning. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. As the rest of this class picked out the tetrameters and iams and other smart-sounding things, I thought about the uh, portrait of Colette Marsh back home, dazzling in its slant of light. I thought about the little smudge I'd left behind. Tell the truth, I wrote in large letters at the top of my notebook, but tell it slant. It sounded profound, I just didn't quite know what it actually meant. I raised my hand in nervous fraction, but Morrissey was busy outlining rhyme schemes on the board, A, B, C, B, D, E, F, E. I looked over at Julian, staring up at the leaves outside with a vaguely amused smile. Did he knew what, know what it meant? I was sure that he must. My hand went down again. After Professor Morrissey ended our class that morning, I walked out across the dew-drenched quad with Shelley, a frail girl whose veil of dark hair seemed to pull her head earthward. She read my whole story during class, and as I bought her a cup of burned cafeteria coffee, she let loose a surprising deluge of jumbled compliments. I never had anyone read, let alone love, the things I'd written, and perhaps it was the coffee, but I found myself warmed by a gentle, acidic sensation. By evening, I had returned to the favor and read her workshop piece, plus another of her stories. Both were about death, and both involved highly disturbing sex scenes. Shelley invited me to stay over, as her roommate was visiting an out-of-town boyfriend. 
I passed a nervous hour trying not to crush her in her dark-sheeted bed under the watchful eyes of a larger-than-life-size poster of Edgar Allan Poe. In the morning, I accidentally woke Shelley as I was reaching my free arm into my backpack on the floor trying to fish out Julian's story. Sorry, I said, I just can't wait to tear this thing apart. What kind of title is this? He must have written this an hour before class. It's not even three pages long. But as Shelley settled back to sleep on a dark waterfall of her own hair, I began to read Julian's story and was soon astounded to find it utterly unterrible. Though the 33rd winter was only two and a half pages, it felt epic. It was about a man skinning a hair out of the moors of Ireland while drinking from a bottle of Epiphany whiskey. I never read anything better. It made me so deeply ashamed of my own story that I wanted a stiff glass of Epiphany myself. Possibly, Julian appeared to know more about being 33 and skinning hairs in Ireland than I did about cleaning restaurant tables and growing up in the American South, which I had actually done. I left Shelley's room that morning in a solemn autumn funk which lingered all through the weekend. It persisted even when, in our next class, Professor Marcy praised my monstrous story for its fine detail. It wasn't until Julian spoke up that I felt any better. It feels classic, but at the same time strangely modern, like Bach played on an electric violin. I had no idea what to make of this, but it was the most he'd ever said at once in our class, so I took it as a double underlined compliment. He said nothing at all about Shelley's piece, If We Were Birds, a gruesome melodrama about a married couple who accidentally killed their newborn baby when a bout of their depraved sex breaks the curve to splinters. I said I liked that there were yellow squids in the nursery wallpaper, and this might be symbolic of something, though what, I couldn't decide. She didn't seem very happy. When we finally got to Julian's story, Professor Morrissey praised it effusively, as did I, as did all the girls except Shelley. Morrissey talked for ten minutes alone about one description of a rock covered in lichen, and by the end I'd have believed that the secrets of the entire universe were contained in that rock. But Julian didn't say a thing, he didn't write down our comments, he didn't even smile. And I'll wrap it up there. I love that scene, it's awesome. <laughs> I, that, that class, I can just picture all of it completely. Uh, <laughs> as, absolutely. as a teacher or? No, actually, as a student, I picture my own college experience, and, and not I didn't take creative writing classes, but I mean, you know, similar dynamics. And there's always classroom dynamics uh, in that situation where there is, there's competition. I mean, you can't even help it. Even as an adult, you go in and everybody sort of ranks each other, like, he's the one that talks too much, and like, this guy, you know, like, whatever, maybe it's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's one of the big themes, I think, that goes, I mean, through the whole book, their relationship with one another changes a lot, but... Um, I was talking to a student of mine actually about the book recently, and I was trying to, and, I, and we were talking about this. Um, you know, one thing I say to my students in the beginning of class, uh, you know, before we start a workshop, is, um, you know, it's it's this is not an episode of Survivor. You do not get to be the best writer by bumping all the other writers off the island. You know, you, you, it's not a zero sum game. You know, the point is to help each other get to be better writers, um, and if you help people, you know, with their work, they're going to help you with, with your work. And, uh, and, and that's, I think, a, in a lot of ways, what the, the overall uh, sort of arc of their, of their writerly friendship is yes. about, you know, sort of moving more towards collaboration.
sort of more or less improvising in a dream. Millions of records, but it's my life doesn't depend on it, so I don't write to that end. Right. Um, maybe I wouldn't anyway. Who knows? But you know, it, it's it, it frees me up, and it also has made me a very disciplined artist. I get home from work, and now I don't have any kids, and that probably makes it a little bit easier. I I, I admit that readily, but I get home and I work on stuff. Whether it's recording, whether it's just playing or, or writing, and I'm with uh, But that's for me. It's made me more efficient and more focused on what I'm doing than than otherwise. I think I'm disciplined enough now that if I won the lottery or people bought scores of records, I could do this. I could do that. I could do that for full time and be productive and efficient. But for a long time, I was way. No, I was just way too immature, and I. You know, I think that, I guess I turned the question around for you, and we can all talk about this, obviously, but, you know, if you had no other responsibilities but writing fiction, would that be good for you? Would that be, would that hurt you, you know, as a writer? Yeah. Uh, either? You know, neutral? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm a, so I'm a, I teach at a college, uh, CD Purchase, uh, an hour north of the city, and, uh, and you know, it's a, it's a great job for me. Um, because it, it it's uh, not it, it's it's both uh, a way of you know getting a paycheck, uh, but I but I get the, the pleasure of getting to go in and um, talk about what I love all the time. So at least you right. know I get to talk to the students about writing and talk to them about books and uh, and actually sometimes that's you know the most interaction I get with other creative people you know in the course of a week you know. And uh, so, so that's a that's one thing that I've always felt like having that job actually does kind of fuel you know my actual work. Um, if I didn't have to teach, I don't know if I still would. Um, I think I probably would still like to teach, like at least a class or two, just just to have that interaction. Um, but uh, what I find is that like over the summer, like right now, I've got three or four months every year that I'm not teaching at all, and uh, uh, and it's generally really bad for my work. Um, and not, sometimes in a disciplined way because, uh, you know, if I've got, you know, if I wake up at nine in the morning and I know I've got all day to, you know, to, to write, there's no need to get started right away. I can, you know, right. have some breakfast and I can, you know, go take a walk and I can watch some TV for a while and, you know, before you know it, it's three o'clock and you haven't actually written a word and, you know, um, during the semester when, like in the past, like when I was working on, um, on the book on leopards, I was teaching, um, I think I was teaching seven courses at two different schools, I, and I was working five nights a week at a tutoring desk. Um, so if I had 25 minutes between sections that I could sit down at a computer to write, um, I had to do it because it might be the only chance I got for another day or two. And um, and so having that you know sort of pressure um, to sit down and actually use the time I had was was good. I think. That's where you spend your time. It can get it can get really really ugly and really fun and you can make you really unhappy quickly. That's what I love about my job is yeah. even, you know, teaching, it pulls you out of yourself completely. Yeah. It has to be, pull yourself out. You can't just be nice. Yeah, yeah, and you have to find a way to figure out, like, even, you know, even getting to, you know, you know do you teach music or? No, no, English. English. Okay. Yeah. So, but, like, even there, I would imagine, like, you have to figure out a way to um, explain it such that they're going to get interested in it. And I think no that's question. really good practice as well. I think, uh, you know, coming back to what we were talking about before, you know, I, I had a lot of professors in college that could talk really eloquently about literature, but, you know, didn't know how to make me like it, you know, didn't know how to explain to me why it mattered or who cared. And um, the teachers I remember are the ones who actually figured out how to, like, draw the, you know, connect the dots between, um, you know, here's why this story matters, here's how it changed the course of events, or here's how it affected literature that happened after it. Big picture stuff was, uh, and I think teaching uh, for me at least makes me think that way. Well, that's I think I see that as job one is making it of interest and relevant to the to the audience, whoever it is. Yeah. Because I can tell you, teaching English to most <laughs> boys, it's not like inherently something they're interested in. In fact, it's yeah. it is ipecac. Yeah. Most 
much. And do you feel that way when you're making music as well? The audience is primary though? It's not immediate in the same way. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, you're not, I, I, I don't, it's not the same thing basically. Um, I don't know how to articulate why it's different. But well, one thing I think you know with students, you pretty much know when you're getting through. Exactly, with an, with an audience, an audience you're not always... An applaud whether you're getting through or not. And, it's, and we're not, not just applaud whether you're getting through or not. You know, you just right. don't know. And not, yeah, you're absolutely true. right. And, 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 and also, not just in a live system. Like, you sometimes think there's nobody out there, but then you find, you run across and be like, oh, yeah, I realized your records are awesome. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. But it's true. If you were a stand-up comic or something, that I can see is more applicable. Yeah. If you're a stand-up comic, you're the get laughs or you don't get laughs. And people are laughing, hopefully, because they find it funny. Some people are... <laughs> you know, walk in with some other baggage, but so you you get some more you, you, you a class yeah. I would imagine is sort of a similar thing. You just get a feel it's for exactly whether like you're whether you're bombing or not. <laughs> it you is. know, yeah. we're singing great boys. That's the way. In music, music you can't let that thought get into your head because you're probably wrong. Right. And if you think too much about it, you get off your game. And you and and, it, and there's just no way of gauging it. I, I mean, it's a, there's exceptions, you know, but but not many. And, and you just gotta put out your best stuff. Well, there's that dismemberment plan song called Doing the Standing Still, which is about this, I don't know if you know dismemberment plan, they're a DC band, very prominent. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's a record about basically playing at this club in the strip mall in Fargo, North Dakota or something. They think they're just bombing because people are just standing there looking <laughs> at it, but afterwards everybody's like, that was awesome. You know, yeah. You don't, you don't know. Of course, a lot of music in different ways. And no question. Students respond to a teacher, or people respond to a comic, or, or it's a it's a different thing. I mean, if you're reading, right. you know, uh, people are you know, writers. Yeah, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm if I'm in a if I'm at a reading and I'm, I'm looking out at people in the audience, you know, you, kind of like in a classroom, I guess you can tell. I mean, people are making eye contact with you, or they're staring at their phone, or they're you know, or they get up halfway through and leave, you know, uh, which happens in, in the classroom too, but. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so you can get that kind of thing, I guess, um, like, almost like performing live. But um, yeah, it's, it's so hard to gauge, yeah, like whether or not people, you know, who are reading the book are enjoying it. Because so I, I feel like so few people probably ever, you know, I don't I, I, I had fallen into a trap at one point where I kind of thought that you could gauge that by like going on Twitter or, you know, Googling to see if people were talking about you. And then I started thinking, like, how many times have I ever done that for something that I liked, you know, if I like it, I tell my friend and they read it and they like it, but, you know, I've, you know, the, the, I never bothered to tell, you know, the author that I thought his work was good, and I feel like most of the time that's not how it works, but, yeah. Well, it's interesting, you, you brought up a point before, too, about seeing people get up halfway through and leave, yeah. and I find, too, like, that's not even, that's not a thumbs down, that's not a vote against. Right. I've done that with bands that I absolutely love, and I think it's awesome. We did it, uh, we went to see Wire the other night. Uh -huh. A very important band to free us individually you know, and collectively in terms of, of, of what we're trying to do up there. Our favorite, yeah. Uh, you know, Matt and I watched the first five or six songs and split and hung out with our, our friends were opening. We hung yeah. out with them backstage and didn't really come back until the encore. You know, it doesn't mean we like Wire any less than we did. Right. Uh, you that know, was a great show. Week or so ago. It had no effect. It was just that this is an opportunity to catch up with people. Maybe you just get in. And there's times you just feel like I'm getting a drink. Exactly. Get a drink. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't dislike this band. I'm thirsty. But, yeah, right. You know, so I'm going to go get a drink. Or I like to not go to the bathroom. You know, much in my hands. You know, right? I'm thirsty. In fact, no, it's I don't dislike this band. I'm thirsty. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, I've seen performers, really, really great performers who are, who are, who are well loved, respond negatively from stage to somebody leaving. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, yeah. you pull out your own game. Then. You know, yeah, you're 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 getting thrown, and this room is pretty full, and they dig you. And this person, yeah. whatever reason, doesn't matter. It's not your business. You know, just play your song, play the next song. I just recently cool. writing about it, sort of, uh, you know, over the course of this past year, you know, seeing the book actually coming out on bookshelves, and um, sort of waiting oh, yeah. for that I moment agree. where I would I feel like I'd made it. You know, waiting for the moment where I felt like not just a writer, but an author. You know, somebody who actually. Uh, yeah, I kind of figured, you know, maybe it'll happen when I get the first printed copy, and maybe it'll happen when I have my first reading or whatever. And what I finally sort of settled on at the end was sort of what you're describing. It's like the difference is, you know, uh, the writer is still looking, the writer in me is still looking for somebody to tell him it's good, and the author sort of knows, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily if somebody gets up and walks out, you know, that the, 
as a body of work. Yeah. Right. You can't get consumed by that validation. I mean, it's really, really invigorating. You get a total, <laughs> that, that, that jolt of an you know, endorphin yeah. jolt when somebody does write about you, put you on social media or a great review, and we've had that happen with the last record bigger way than we ever have and it was great and gratifying and in a lot of ways validating but yeah waiting around for that or searching on the internet is when you get yourself in trouble <laughs> you know yeah. uh, it, it not only do you stumble across things you don't want to see but it's also uh, yeah okay. um, anyway well I was just saying I, maybe maybe a little bit more performance I mean, do you have anything else you want to read I mean I don't um, want to force you to but I, I, I'd like it if you if you had something yeah sure, sure. Let's, uh, let's, let's, yeah, let's, uh, it's been a it's been a great pleasure yeah. Uh, let's uh, wrap things up with uh, with another reading from the book, and right. then we'll play another couple of tunes. All right. Um, do you guys have any requests? So I've, I've read. Yeah, something in Luxembourg. Luxembourg. Okay. That's tricky because it's. Uh, let's see here. Well, if you don't want to do that, no, don't return, so, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just haven't read from that. You're wrong. So, let's. Uh, I'll read you the first page of two symbols. Jeffrey sits in the window wearing a white waffle woven bathrobe embroidered with the elegant logo of the Hotel Luxembourg. His left hand moves lazily out in the fifth story air as if conducting an invisible orchestra. His right hand pinches a cigarette which he smokes fiercely while staring down at the statue of Grand Duke, Duke Guillaume II in the square below. Then Jeffrey looks back into the kitchenette where I lean over a newspaper written in Luxembourgish, a language I frankly did not know even existed before we arrived. It's just too, I mean, honestly, do you know what I mean? It, does it have to be quite so, I just look at them all down there. Oh, I'm blah, blah, blah. Don't you think blah, blah is so blah? Yes, quite blah. God, you know what I'm saying? He tosses a lit cigarette across the hotel room and it lands in the large empty fireplace amid the butts of yesterday's pack. His right hand traces a route through his gray hairs down the freckled ridge of his ear and then along the shoulder slope of the of road to his pocket where he fishes out his aluminum pack of Chancellor Treasurer cigarettes. He's hardly ever without one for more than a minute. He calls it his sovereign addiction, the only one remaining after obliterating pills, booze, and sex from his diet. What is it about this place? I don't even know what we're doing here. You wanted to come, I remind him. You could have stayed with Pauline. An electric shudder runs through Jeffrey, and I know he was thinking back on the recuperative months we spent at the Oaks Reserve Vineyard in the Loire Valley. Skip down a little bit so that I don't give something away. And uh, here we go. Uh, savvy. What's up? Very savvy. Uh, that Jeffrey can't quite put a finger on his issue with Luxembourg cannot entirely be blamed on writer's block. I feel it too. The trouble with Luxembourg is that you can't quite figure out what it is trying to be exactly. Everywhere I look, there are soaring parapets, medieval coats of arms. There are old men playing checkers on a folding table in the park below us and stone gargoyles on the ramparts above us. But even they see a bit, seem a bit bored by it all. In Paris, you could complain the Eiffel Tower was not as striking as you'd hoped. In Berlin, the beer wouldn't be worth the crowds. In London, the fog could be thick, but not hiding Jack the Ripper thick. In all these places, there were expectations, but in Luxembourg, there were none. One might ask how, without any expectations, could anything be a letdown? But that was the thing. There was a delight in being let down that Jeffrey thrived on. Here it all just was, no better or worse than what we'd never imagined. And Jeffrey was floundering like a saltwater fish dropped into a pond. Everything looked right, and yet he was steadily suffocating. All the poisons he'd long ago adapted to withstand were suddenly nowhere to be found. I'll stop there. Right on. Nice. Very nice. And that was all written before I got, I got there. So. <laughs> Where, uh, just to, to pick one a little detail, uh, the brand of cigarettes you chose there. Okay. How, how did you come across that? So I think that was, you know, literally just at one point, uh, you know, I was trying to find, you know, I need a, I need a cigarette here that a very wealthy person would smoke, and uh, so I think I actually might have Google searched for like most expensive cigarettes or something, and I kind of stumbled on that, you know, particular brand, and read a little bit more about it to make sure it was something that Jeffrey would actually smoke. But, uh, but yeah, that was a, yeah, I don't think I've ever actually seen a pack. That but I looked it up and they cost like fifteen, twenty dollars a pack or something like that. Well, how so do uh, Newport Lights in New York City? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have a couple more, and then we can. i
Thank you.